Hello and welcome to The Frontline, a podcast from ILGA Europe in Brussels. We represent and work on behalf of over 700 LGBTI activist organizations across Europe and Central Asia, and our podcast aims to bring you to the front lines of queer activism in the regions. My name is Brian Finnegan, and in this episode we're looking at the controversy that erupted at the World Cup in Qatar around the wearing of armbands in support of LGBTI rights in the country where homosexuality is a crime and men caught in sexual acts with one another can face several years of imprisonment or even the death penalty. The big media story at the beginning of the World Cup centred on FIFA banning all players on European teams from wearing the One Love armband, saying they would be given yellow cards and sent off pitch if they did so. But what happens when divisions over LGBTI issues become the leading stories surrounding an event like the World Cup and last year's European Championships? Do these stories serve the LGBTI communities in countries where people are at risk? Do they serve the greater goals of the LGBTI movement for equality? Or is this focus on LGBTI people and issues simply creating a rainbow divide in which the human rights of one group are separated from the human rights of all? With me to discuss the complexities around singling out LGBTI rights at the Qatar World Cup are Programmes Director at ILGA World, Gurchatan Sandhu, Editorial Director at Politico, Ryan Heath, and our own Executive Director at ILGA Europe, Evelyn Paradis. Welcome everyone, and thanks for joining us on the front line today. So I'm going to start by measuring the temperature in the room to ask each of you what your original uh, reaction was to the what was in effect an outright ban by FIFA on the wearing of the One Love armbands. Gurchatan, I'll, I'll come to you first. What, what was When it happened, what was your first reaction? Um, shock and surprise um, and disappointment. Um, I think that was my first reaction. And trying to better understand, you know, why this actually happened. Um, so there was a lot of frustration there and disappointment, I would say. And then, it, you know, you go through the the uh, the range of emotions. It's like a breakup, you know. This is <laughs> It's heartache, it's break, and then it's anger, and then you start to sort of um move on so that was the the temperature check there i, I don't know if that's that, that's, um, answers that, you. Uh, that's a, good, a good answer ryan i i rolled my eyes because it's disappointing but i find that sports is a little bit ridiculous in general uh, and people get very obsessed with it and apply incorrect language to it so they'll say fifa banned or it's illegal and i don't know like FIFA can't make anything illegal. FIFA doesn't have a court. FIFA isn't a government. <laughs> so it's like it's only illegal in the sense that everyone agrees to go along with what FIFA wants or says. So I think that people do have choices in this situation. And I, I don't want to give a sports body this kind of sort of equate it to being a government or anything like that. But I also understand the really difficult position people were put in. You know, people make their life's work to get involved in an event like this. And then you get threatened with being unable to do the thing that is your life's work. You know, I don't want to be in that situation either. And Evelyn, when you read about it first? Um, I think I'm in between. <laughs> in the sense that I, I did I did have the reaction that Gurchatan um, had, which is like, it, it's really quite shameful um, that, you know, a large institution, yeah, you're right, Ryan, it's not a government, but it's a large institution that holds so much power and influence 
Um, and it is shameful that they take the stand of not allowing, you know, not making it easy for athletes to show support, you know, for something that is so core, such a core human right. And just saying, you know, sem- such a such a core, quite simple message of, you know, solidarity. However, I wasn't surprised <laughs> because what what do we expect, you know, when when you well, what do you expect from a an institution like FIFA that has been known also to have its history of you know corruption and and not taking a stand? But also, it's also not surprising that if you use an an issue like LGBTI uh, rights and equality and you put it at the center, it's it's bound to be an either or reaction. And this is what happened. There's many other human rights abuses um, happening in Qatar and that did happen in the lead up to the event itself over the past years. Workers' rights, women's rights, to name but a few. And Evelyn, in in Ilga Europe, we've kind of used the word pink smokescreen to talk about whether LGBTI issues are being used to distract from these other human rights abuses that are happening. So Evelyn, would you like to maybe expand on that thought a little bit for us? Yes, I, indeed. I mean, you know Brian very well, how we've been discussing this internally. And I guess it is a reflection of, on one hand, of course, you know, issues faced by LGBTI communities in Qatar needed to be named as, as part of the overall situation in the country. And of course, it's to be expected, and it's actually something you have to do, which is to react to a stand like FIFA, who's saying we're not allowing you to show solidarity. But why is it that it was getting so much attention compared to women's rights? I mean, that was one you know reflection we had in the team, which is have have any of us heard any media attention, any government attention for that matter, to what it's like to be a woman you know, regardless of your, like, in all your diversity in Qatar, I, I haven't seen any kind of news coverage. I haven't heard any government talk about the situation of women in the country. There were reports and there was some mentioning of the situation of migrant workers uh, early on, like months ago, but that seemed to have been forgotten. So, so there is that piece of, and it's not like LGBTI people are like women are LGBTI. There were probably, you know, LGBTI people who were migrant workers. So it's just like that thinking of constantly putting everything in silo and not looking at the broader picture. And why is it that one issue is singled out over another it was what left us very uncomfortable. I think, in, in the organization. And Gertatten, would you have felt a, a similar or had similar thoughts about the, the idea of a smokescreen for other human rights? Yes and no. I think um, if we go back in time to um, when Qatar first won or had their bid put in, the issue of migrant worker rights and the kafala system were front and centre. And that was back into uh, 2012, 20, uh, 2013. And at the time, I was working at the ILO, and we saw the forced labor case come into the ILO when it was decision was made at the ILO that yes, there is a a case here, and the and the Qataris were willing to work on it. And there was a lot of f- focus. And then there's me as as an as a as a international civil servant saying, well, hang on, what about these? And saying to the ILO, you're engaging here, engage, engaging, um, um, talking to my supervisors at the time, you're working with this government, and what are you doing then? And it was always, yes, we'll get to it. So what we have seen and what we continue to see is a hierarchy of rights. This is first, this is more palatable to the government, then we will talk about this set of rights and then this set of rights. 
And had we addressed this issue and these issues from the get-go and talked about indivisible, inalienable human rights as a collective and come together, I don't think we would have been here in this situation. And yet again, in preparation for the World Cup, Men's World Cup in 2026, in the USA, Mexico, guess where we find ourselves? In the very same situation. Because what are we doing? We're talking about migrant worker rights in Mexico, in the USA, in Canada. Yes, it's very, very important. Very important. And it's not to say it's more important than, but we need to make sure that we don't leave in our advocacy, we don't leave anyone behind, that we as a movement, are more collective, that we say this, this, and this, and we want you to do all of it and and give us commitment, not just this. And, and it's not just from governments, it's from UN agencies as well. And it's from within our own movements as well, that we don't let each other down. Thanks. That's a, that's a very good uh, point, actually, within our own movement. Um, but, Ryan, one love armbands and footballers. It's a sexy media story. Oh, it's, it's an easy thing to photograph, to visualize, to represent. And I think the media is guilty. And I, sh- I shouldn't say the media. There is no the media. But, you know, if I can generalize for a second, I think uh, media outlets are not that different to politicians. And maybe those two groups are different to activists. But, you know, a regulator or a politician is often fighting the last war today, because they're not able to keep up with a different trend or a different movement. And the media can sometimes be the same, where there has been an historic underrepresentation of these issues. Uh, LGBTQI groups have been uh, dismissed or marginalized in sporting arenas and in sporting coverage in the past. And now that people are more aware of that, or there are more people in media outlets that want to change that, then it becomes this kind of uh, over backlash uh, that doesn't consider other elements. And like Evelyn was saying, we do think in silos. And so I think in general, there's probably some unfair representation of, well, not unfair representation, but uh, an overly critical approach to Qatar compared to, say, problems in the United States when we get to the 2026 World Cup. And, uh, you know, that that is not fairly considered. So we'll give a free pass to the US in four years' time, I'm pretty sure, if we were doing this podcast in four years' time, looking at the overall scene. Then we say, oh, okay, women, well, that's that's a big problem in Saudi Arabia or Iran right now. Media can't possibly focus on all these things at once. And uh, we, we kind of did migrant workers, um, even though we didn't totally solve it. But Sharon Burrow from the International Trade Union Movement thinks there's progress. So, okay, now, tick, we can just worry about the one love armband sort of thing. And and it is the wrong approach, but it's it's trying to right a bigger wrong in the past as well. So it's not an evil thing. It's just a unfortunate sort of suboptimal outcome if i can go into buzzwords for a second a suboptimal outcome but, but I, yes there is that that idea you know they never talked about us uh previously there was very little and they can't stop talking about it. <laughs> now but now the media can't stop talking about it also the media as we say that covers so much and so so many arenas and so many platforms why do you think it's risen to this level Uh, I think that we are thinking often in Western terms when we talk about this media representation. I'll be really honest with you. I don't know that this has much coverage in African websites looking at the World Cup, for example. Um, So there is that kind of Western blinker that is present in this discussion. I think that, I don't want to say it's easy, but if you think about sports as marketing tools and, and the economics of sports, 
like what is the untapped market in a lot of these rich Western markets for sports. It is groups like LGBTQI communities. So reaching out to us and including us is profitable in some of these communities. So therefore, you know, it, it becomes an acceptable way to look inclusive and it's easier than maybe having some of these other class-based discussions or race-based discussions or gender-based discussions. Evelyn, would you like to expand on acceptable, the word, ex- the acceptable controversy or the acceptable thing to look at? Well, I, I think it, it connects to the, the other part of the reflection that we've had, which is because it's acceptable, it's also oversimplified and it's, it tends to glaze over the complexity of issues <laughs> that, um, that communities face. And that's the problem at the moment is like, I I completely, it's very interesting to hear, you know, uh, Ryan's take on why it attracts and what might be the mindset of the media, uh, which of course, you know, as, as a good intention, I guess, (laughs) behind if we simplify it, but it's the consequences I think we see is that it's, we're only, the media now seems to look at only what is an acceptable, easy way to grasp the issues of LGBTI communities and, and people. And it's, it, it's harder to get past and to really talk about the more complex issues. Um, we were reflecting on in the team that in the same week, you know, it's, it's the very, it's, it's so illustrative that in the same week, of course, there was the, the tragedy in in Colorado and then there's the armband and so it it exemplifies the spectrum of where the media goes it talks about LGBT issues when it's a real tragedy and it's violence or where it's something that can be in many ways commercialized right it's it's, it's an easy it's an easy topic but we know that the lives of people are all between you know those two ends of the spectrum and why is it so difficult to be continuing to talk about the situation of lgbti people in ukraine at the moment for instance why is it so difficult i mean i'm just speaking in a western context of course not even you know thinking of the rest of the world so this acceptability concept is becoming very problematic if we don't know how to get past it i think I suppose for, for us uh, in our uh, organization and in my job as a comms director, we're constantly trying to get people to talk about LGBTI issues and uh, to get them on the agenda. Um, Gurchatton, when, when they're singled out like this in this way, what are the upsides and what are the downsides of, of this focus? Um, that's a great question. Um, and this one I have, you know, was asking myself, I mean, had, had the, you know, let's ask ourselves a hypothetical question. Had the games not gone to Qatar, would there have been enough attention on the issue of LGBTIQ plus rights in Qatar? Not at all. I think a lot of people would not even know what the LGBTIQ plus rights are of uh, <laughs> the law says on LGBTIQ plus people in, in the country. So the upside is yes, it brings to attention the issues. But again, there has to be a done. Uh, there has to be a process in the way it's done, and there's a, a moral and an ethical responsibility on the way it is reported. And this is why we um, at Ogle World provided some guidelines to journalists when reporting on this issue that the issue is not black and white. That there are severe, there are, there are several complexities and layers to the issue of LGBTIQ plus rights. You know from divergences on the ground, the issues of players, the issues of LBQ women, the issues of visitors. So the upside is it can bring attention. 
But the downside also is that post games, what's going to happen? And yet we're yet to see what the impacts are. Has the upside is we know the positionality of people. We know the positionality of government. We know how we need to engage with them and how to discuss the issue. And that's better than none, no discussion at all, because when there's no discussion, I think that's what leads to violence. And that's, that's the threat to our communities. So the upside, it has brought discussion to it. The downside is we haven't had a framing to have that discussion. And some of that discussion has those commitments uh, that have been made and those assurances that were given um, to us for the safety of fans or the, the waving of pride flags. FIFA has gone back on them. So I think um, the downside is it's shown us the reality. Well, um, I perhaps I'm being a bit too naive here or, or optimistic, but it's shown us the realities of, of FIFA. You know, I went in, you know, we went in and had these discussions with them on good faith. And some of the, that good faith has been let down. We've seen that now. So on multiple layers, there are good sides and bad sides. I think we, we need to take it all. I think, and it's not over yet. Let's wait for these games to be over and let's see what's going to happen and what the, if there's any impact and what the legacy of the games are. And I hope that there's an upside that, you know, we can continue this discussion and we can continue to have dialogue. It's when we're not having that dialogue, it's dangerous or it's we're not doing anything. The, well, it was great to, that you supplied those guidelines, really and good on Ilga World to produce those guidelines in advance of, of what was going to be quite a complex situation. But we know that the media increasingly doesn't go for complexity or nuance, and it's a, it's a really difficult one. Ryan, would you like to talk about the battle between, I suppose, clickbait and uh, nuanced journalism in, in this context? Oh, wow. How long have we got? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's, yeah, I haven't seen too many examples of clickbait, I would say here. I think it's part, I would also position this in a broader trend in sport of people in sport being willing to take a political stand or use a voice that they have on other platforms that they have as a result of their sporting prowess. So, you know, before social media, yes, you could be a sports person who stood in front of some media cameras and demanded to to, to have attention for some controversial viewpoint um, or a non-controversial viewpoint. You know, think of Muhammad Ali and, and the stance he took as a sports person. Um, but now with social media, you've got all the ways unfiltered in the world to to say that you're going to do something. And even when FIFA does bans, people find ways like the German team did to, to show that they were being silenced from what they really wanted to do. Or Hilla Torning-Schmidt, the former Danish prime minister, knew that she wasn't going to get thrown out of a room, even if a journalist might be. So she wore those rainbow sort of motifs on, on, on her suit um, with the FIFA president. So there's always ways to, to, to make a statement. On, on the sort of clickbait versus nuanced journalism stuff, I think there's several layers there. So more and more media outlets now have business models that go back to subscriptions which sounds fancy, or they'll make it sound fancy, but it's really just what everyone did when they subscribed to a newspaper that was home delivered 30 years ago. So it's just reinventing the wheel, really. But when you're in the subscription model, you're not desperate for every last eyeball because you've got guaranteed income coming in. So that's one part of a solution to that clickbait problem. Uh, The other one is that people have very short attention spans now. So it's not so much clickbait versus nuance. It's that 
all of you listening to this podcast are also not reading past the fourth paragraph of stories. So you can write 40 paragraphs as a journalist. It doesn't mean anyone is going to read them. And so that is also a struggle that is is not going to go away in this very uh, internet heavy media world that we now exist in. And so you're always in a battle in your own mind as a journalist about you want to make it sexy and grabbable as content, but you don't want to mislead people and then have them feel let down or feel like it's empty calories once they've gotten into the story. But if you just make it super boring, then you don't even get to the fourth paragraph. People just don't open the damn thing up. So you're you're constantly juggling this kind of matrix of um, thoughts and tendencies in your writing. And and I don't think that's going to go away. But I, I do see some signs of hope that we're getting to a more stable environment. You know, people aren't as obsessed with those 140 character sort of ways of exploding into debate. And it's not just about headlines anymore. But, but you know, it's going to be tricky from here on in, I think. And within this this context, we have a story like the One Love Armband, which really becomes the main story at the opening of the World Cup. And we have people across the world reading about LGBTI people and LGBTI rights. And I'm wondering, and, and, and this is something that we've talked about in our team as well, so I'm going to come to you, Evelyn, to talk about the us and them narrative. Is it, is it fueling an us and them narrative? A rainbow division between human rights? Well, I think it really is a, a risk in the sense that because, I mean, as Ryan aptly described, you know, there's the reason why the stories get very simple um, and they get to the core. And it's the stories that are reported on by the media, but it's also the stories that are given by politicians and opinion makers. So, you know, yes, um, politicians showed up at the World Cup with an armband, band, with, you know, a rainbow motif somewhere, and that's what gets reported. They feel good about taking a stand. We won't necessarily, you know, criticize them. It was, you know, an, <laughs> something to be expected. But then the question is, then what? There is, you know, so yes, great pictures, even the, like the Belgian foreign minister was also with the armband. Like many people showed up with an armband and were taking pictures of. So, okay, the symbol is there, but it doesn't get accompanied by a message of what's needed, what's behind, whether it's a story about what is the reality for people in Qatar or why it matters for any governments or like the, the messages are not there. So for me, the question is like, what do we do with those statements to start with? Because, because it doesn't lead to any real action that can actually help <laughs> people in reality. And then the other question in my head is like, what, what do people, like what does the general public see and what do they get from it? They say, okay, so politicians are either saying we're for or against, <laughs> you know, LGBTI equality, one love. And it, it's always uh, framed as an either or. It's either you're supportive of LGBTI equality or you're not. And it doesn't help us get into the, the conversations, you know. And I know conversations are a hard thing to have in our current <laughs> world of very short attention span. But it doesn't, it doesn't help talk about all of the 
prejudices, misgivings, just lack of information and ignorance that people have. So I'm always left with that. What does it do really concretely, other than making many of us feel good? And actually, is there a risk that it keeps on saying to people, you have to take sides without actually understanding what those sides are about? Imagine this. Imagine one of the teams just went on walkabout through Doha and just chatted to ordinary Qataris about their support for the One Love statement. That would have been a media event. That would have taken these elite athletes, and I'm not blaming them for being elite athletes, put into a bubble. But they are in a bubble. And the bubble's very separate from the lived reality of anyone in Qatar who identifies as a member of our communities. And imagine there'd just been some direct retail street level <laughs> engagement. I mean, that would have still been a great story if if someone had dared to do that. And even this is and this is where indeed I think uh we're we're picking a lot on the media and how they report, but it's also what kind of stories are we all collectively feeding to the media, you know? None of the politicians or the officials that showed up in Doha thought of doing something more meaningful than wearing the armband that had been banned, you know, something that would actually give you meat to be discussing the issues in one way or another. Well, here is a critique I have generally, and I'm not blaming sort of people in in queer movements now, but like it's all the people you just talked about. It's indicative of a very me-centered version of activism and expression now. So what those people were doing was about them or their home societies. It wasn't about Qatar or particularly marginalized communities. And the best activism is one that looks out and sees the pattern or reaches out across divides, not the the one that just makes one feel better about oneself, which is, I think, what we were seeing a lot in Qatar. And Kurchatan, I can see you nodding enthusiastically at that. Do you want to expand? Yeah, definitely. I think it also then plays into the the further into us versus them. I mean, it puts us into the whole concept of what LGBTIQ plus equality is at a, at a Western perspective, and it doesn't understand the nuances of a cultural dynamic or what's happening in those regions. And it, then what it does is also further fuels Islamophobia, and it throws, well, look, this is how we are treated. Uh, this is how uh, Qataris behave. This is what Islam is like, and it just paints an awful. Uh, and it is then it gets d- doubly used, and it fuels into this, and it it, it becomes almost um, divisive on another part. It then also divides us even further. Where I've seen comments in in traditional media, where on the on the tabloid pages, where you see in the comment section, you know, can't we just all play football? You know, and it also then fragments. The support from people, you know, well, you know, if you're going to go there, you should respect their culture. And it further other creates that segment on that on that divisive line as well. So, you know, the this whole point of, you know, uh, what both Evelyn and Ryan have clearly, you know, beautifully articulated this, you know, this clickbaitism, this 140 characters reporting, um, not going into the 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 message and understanding the reason behind the message doesn't allude to much it just further divides us and it's also not just um dividing us um between 
and I hate to say it, between LGBTIQ plus people and those who are not in members of our community, but within our communities as well. It's dividing us and it's creating more tears and we don't need that. Um, and I think it also is so distractive as to what the actual issues are back home in our own countries, you know, where we are seeing massive attacks on trans rights right now across the world, across Europe. And this is not yet on one page, on the same page of media, you're seeing, um, you know, LGBTIQ plus rights in Qatar. And this is an issue and um, there's a ban on the armband. But at the same time, trans women are a threat. And you're like, what is it? Are we, do you love us or do you hate us? They can't, it's still this undecided, you know, they're still undecided. It's like, yes, we're going to beat them with it, but we're not, we're, we're, you know, but this is a serious issue here for us. So we have to be really, really careful about this and um, call it out when, well, I won't say call it out, call it in. This is what we need you to do better. And this is not okay. And continue that discussion and dialogue and have that. Um, But it's, it's not easy. We have a long way to go yet. The trickiest question in this tricky matrix of all, and I'll come to you, Ryan, first with this, is how do we find an ideal way forward? And I'm thinking in terms of what you're talking about in how to write a piece of journalism that keeps people reading, gets some nuanced messaging out there and starts talking about LGBT rights within the greater context of all human rights. Well, the good thing about that point I was making about subscriptions making a comeback is that I think the thing that wins or keeps subscriptions is the really memorable journalism. You know, the stuff that gets the eyeballs and the advertising money in is the cheap fluffy stuff often. But the thing that makes you go, oh, I really care about that publication. I I would actually put money down for it is the detailed relevatory stuff. And that's the opportunity here for these discussions. And then more generally, you now know a bunch of people who are willing to write about these issues because we can see all of their bylines and a database can be made of those people and they can be followed up with with other story opportunities and other explanations and their conscience can be played upon because they probably realised that they didn't do full justice to these issues Um, and then you can tap into that so that they circle back in six months or a year and do justice to it, or they do a better job in four years at the next World Cup. Because I think this is a conversation and a journey in general. The rights don't always move forward in a linear way. There's steps forward and there's steps back and there's circles (laughs) sometimes as well. And that's just the kind of like the, the sad but hopeful reality of any activism is that it's just a conversation that has to keep happening. Um, and I think, you know, I, I still tend to believe in the good human nature of most people, that most people do want to do better. And, you know, you don't always find the way to tap into that understanding or that empathy at first, but most people don't want to be bad human beings. They don't want to fail at their profession. And so the more conversations you have, eventually the more progress you get. And Evelyn, from your perspective here in Brussels, where we're constantly trying to shift things forward for Europe and Central Asia, what do you think is the way forward? Well, I, I'll i follow on uh, Ryan. I think I agree too. The conversation always is ever growing and ever continuing. It, it never stops. And I think the piece I take for from our conversation here is what we populate this conversation with. <laughs> and there's two things here is, I think, emphasizing what Ryan said around the collective perspective. I think the, the having to work 
to counter this tendency we have to be too individualistic. And when I say we as more just a collective in our societies, you know, the overemphasis on, on what is an individual benefit versus a collective benefit. And I think that is something we clearly try to make central to the communication at Tilke Europe, but like having to, like really modeling this in terms of stressing what is collective and common and in that like really always being so attentive to not leaving people behind and I think trying to find those stories to put that at the front um uh yeah so I think that's one aspect and the other piece is is also what stories we give to the media in terms of I think there's the work to be done with politicians to educate them and to give them new creative ideas of what like what their responses are in situations like you know the FIFA situation like to try to be a little bit more imaginative so that the next time there is a FIFA like situation their response is not simply I'll wear a rainbow t-shirt or the armband that was banned but that something that will generate more content than simply a really nice image i think those are things that it would be great to think together on and Gertatten, we talked to briefly here about the division between representation because this is a story in the west so can you talk a bit about the way forward on a on a global perspective, which is really hard to do, but I, I know it's yeah, what you think about every day, I'd say, because it's part of your work. Yeah, I think, are we talking about mega sporting events here? And and if we are, then yes. I think the way forward is that there's so much work to be done in the mega sporting events industry in terms of, it's not just about the, the workers there, the worker rights there. It's about not just about the players and making sure that all players can participate. And, this, you know, there's still a lot of legislation and rules around bodily autonomy and uh, body integrity. And we've seen a pushback globally right now across sporting industries, sector, sorry, be it rugby, be it swimming, where federations have put in bans against trans women. So we're seeing this global trend there. So there is going to be more of this as well. And I think there's going to be a lot more work to be done uh, for our communities as well. And I think here, the trend going forward, I think, again, we've got to be very careful because it could divide us as well. There is also divisive and it's being used again also to uh, separate ourselves. We can only just go onto the Twitter sphere and see how members of our community are responding and divided over over uh, the rights of, of trans athletes in sporting events. So we have that issue as well. Then we have the issue of where mega sporting events are held and in which locations. You know, 2030, there's rumors of another uh, Gulf state to host another mega sporting event. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Um, I think this is something that we've got to allow ourselves to continue to have these discussions um, and say, look, what do we learn from what's happened in Qatar and how do we improve on it? Should Gulf states or other states who who have egregious uh, commit egregious uh, violations um, against human rights in their country should be allowed to host uh, such events, and then how we respond to that as well. So um, as a community, it's going to keep us busy, and there's going to be a lot of work. So 
on that note, I think, you know, we have to be well resourced. Um, and that's not just financially. We need the experts in the room uh, who are there and know how to work with certain legislation, know how to work with medical, uh, with sporting bodies, um, know the chemistry, the science behind all of this, know their way around these sporting boardrooms and can actually give us access to their sporting boardrooms. Because we know there's only certain types of people that get those that access and we're not there so um from this in particular i think going back to evelyn's point what is the follow-up message the follow-up messages are our national sporting associations going back into their federations and having this discussion going forward what are they doing about this what are our governments doing about it and holding their own sporting associations accountable in these global sporting events as well so I think this is it's not something that's gone away and will not go away for a long time until but it's it, I wouldn't say it's a good conversation, but it's a conversation that we need to have and continue to have. Well, look, it's been a really interesting conversation and good to begin the conversation. And I think we'll be talking about it, as Gertrude says, quite a lot uh, in times to come. In the meantime, thank you, Gertrude, Evelyn and Ryan for joining us today on the front line. And I wish you well with the rest of your days. You have been listening to The Frontline, Elgi Europe's LGBTI activism podcast. To find out more about our guests and the organisations they represent, visit the links in our episode description. And please subscribe, like, comment or share wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in next time when we'll be travelling further on the front lines of LGBTI activism in Europe and Central Asia. Bye for now.